let's talk about Philippians. That's what we're looking at today. And I want to try to bring this letter alive to you. To do that, I'm going to give you my roadmap for the day. We're going to do three things. I'm going to be tour guide Barbie, and I'm going to give you background behind the, the town of Philippi. We're just going to take a tour. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what we know about the people who got this letter from Paul. If I send you an email, if I send you a letter, you are important to understanding my email. I, I, otherwise, it's just like, uh, what do we call it? Junk mail, where they just send it out to everybody. Those are the ones we tend to just throw away or hit delete on, right? Well, Paul's wasn't junk mail. It was a specific letter. And because it was a specific letter to specific people in a specific situation or circumstance, it does us good to understand who those people are. So that's where we'll start. And then the second thing we're going to do after that is we're going to look at this Greek word koinonia. Koinonia. It's a word that Paul uses early in the letter. Paul uses it often. It's a word you've heard me talk about maybe on video thoughts for the day. But it's a word that's important, so we'll look at that. And then the third thing, assuming we've got time, is we'll sum this up showing how God is at work. So with that is our roadmap, and that is our guide, let's begin with background. And I'd like to welcome you to Philippi. Here it is. <clears throat> now, it's not in the best of shape right now. But if we went back to, these being the ruins, if we went back to the ancient world, we've got to place it first within the context of, um, my little remote control is not happy today. Um, is it possible that I have bad batteries? Huh? There we go. With that, I was in a world of trouble. Um, <laughs> Let's, let's, let's travel from our hemisphere over to that hemisphere. Here you can see Europe. You can see the Nile River. We thank uh, the satellites for this view. This is the Mediterranean. You've got Saudi Arabia and all of that mess. You've got uh, uh, up here uh, Turkey. You've got Greece. You've got the Italy boot. You've got Spain, Gibraltar. You're oriented, right? All right, let's zoom in a little bit. Well, this is going to be fun. Um, if we get into just the Mediterranean world and we focus on it, we can, let me, okay, I'm not going to be happy. Do we have extra batteries? I think the batteries may be scrawny. Thank you so much. I'm sorry to be uh, persistent. Um, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to zoom in on Greece, Macedonia, and Turkey. Because those are the areas that really we're concerned about. Remember, Israel is down here. Jerusalem is down here. That's the Dead Sea. And so with the focus on that, let's see if we can zoom in a little bit more. Now, that is Greece in front of you, in the middle. The northern part is Macedonia. 
To the left, as you're viewing it, is the Italian boot. To the right is Turkey. You got it? We all see where we are. All right. Philippi is right there. Uh, that's not, actually, that is Pella. Philippi is over here. So Pella is the birthplace of a very important king of Macedon. That king's name was Philip II. He became king because his two brothers... Okay. He became king because his two brothers, uh, who were older, didn't quite make it. So Philip II becomes the king of Macedon. And he tries to expand from Pella, which is the, the central city, he tries to expand his kingdom out. He reigns from 380, or lives from 382 to 336. Okay? There are minds, by the way, he's the daddy of Alexander the Great. Okay? There are gold mines over here, and he expands the kingdom and he wants the gold mines. So you want the gold, what do you got to do? You got to get it, and you got to protect it. So he's got this little bit of a village there, and he decides this would be a great place to put a garrison. To protect the gold, you are Marvy, thank you. To protect the gold. And so he does. And do you know what he does with this garrison as he builds up the walls and fortifies it? He names it after himself, Philip I. And so Philip I is named after Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great, the king of Macedon. And it's a pretty big deal. And so he's got this town that he names and, and, and the town continues to operate and it continues to be an important town. The gold mines continue to produce gold and so people care about this area. And now I'll fast forward you just a little bit in time. Let's go to 42 BC. So... Philip is here till 336. He dies. Alexander the Greatest, son takes over. Alexander conquers more of the world than anybody had ever thought to conquer before, all the way into India. Um, uh, and, and then he dies, and the world gets divided into four parts. And ultimately, Caesar, Julius Caesar, sort of uh, oversteps his bounds. Rome had started out as a kingdom. And then Rome <clears throat> wasn't operating very good as a kingdom. So about 500 B.C. or so, I could have that date way wrong. But this fella named uh, Brutus basically uh, causes, gets rid of the king. He, he gets, turns Rome upside down. Rome becomes a republic. And Rome's a republic for centuries until Julius Caesar wants to turn it back into a kingdom. And wants to be Caesar as in king. As in for life. And that upsets a multi-generational offspring of Brutus who kills him. And so 
Julius Caesar is killed and Brutus and Cassius, his, his uh, cohort in crime in a sense, they take a bunch of armies and there is a civil war to fight over who's going to run or be emperor of Rome. And in one camp you've got Brutus and Cassius and in the other camp you've got Octavius Caesar, an adopted son of Julius Caesar, and Mark Antony, as in Antony and Cleopatra. So those four armies combine for the massive fight to see who's going to win the Roman Empire. Octavius and Antony win. Octavius changes his name to Caesar Augustus, who is the Caesar when Christ is born. In the days of Caesar Augustus, an angel came to Mary and said, okay, so, but in 42 BC, that huge battle to decide who's going to win the Roman Empire takes place in Philippi. Philippi. And so we've got that in 42. This is not happy. There you go. We've got that in 42. By the way, right before it happened, from the silver mines, even a little bit further. Brutus is minting coins after himself. That's him, Brute. And on the back, Eid March. The Ides of March is when he killed uh, Caesar. So anyway, uh, just interesting stuff. The Battle of Philippi takes place. Uh, Brutus commits suicide. Cassius commits suicide. And the armies win. And that's 42 BC. So that's a seminal moment. And the victors in that make Rome ultimately a Roman colony. That's different than being a town. Rome, the Roman Empire allowed lots of towns to be themselves. They could have their own government, they can have their own laws, they can have their own rulers, as long as they keep the peace of Rome and pay their money. But you have to keep an empire intact and that means you need to strategically make sure you've got armies and Roman citizens placed in various places throughout. So certain cities or towns would be designated as colonies, colonia, or cities that belonged to Rome. And they had to have Roman law. And they had Roman forms of government. And they had Rome-appointed leaders. Okay? And that's what happens to Philippi here. It becomes that. Now, zero, we'll say for the sake of transition, is the birth of Christ somewhere around there. 33 A.D., in general, for the death of Christ, somewhere around there. And so you've got Jesus in that time frame. But the, dis, the, the distance between the battle and the presence of Jesus, while to some younger people will be rather profound, 42 ain't all that, the older I get, the less that becomes. Just saying, 42 years ago, I was getting ready to go to college, or I was in college. I remember that pretty good. Add another 33 years, Jesus is dead. Um, and then 50 to 52, 
somewhere in that time range, Paul makes a missionary journey and he comes to Philippi. We read about it in Acts 16. And this gives us some good background information on the community there that Paul wrote to. So I want to look at Acts chapter 16 with you. And um, even with good batteries, it just doesn't like me going up there today. That's okay. So here it is. Let's look at this together. Paul, here. Paul came to Lystra. Now that's a city over in Turkey. That's in the Galatian region. We've been reading Galatians carefully for the last 18 weeks. So this is a Galatian church. Paul came to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Now we need to pause for a moment. Timothy is the son of a Jewish mother, a woman, mother, and father is a Greek. I like this. I like this because Timothy is ultimately one of Paul's people that goes with him to Philippi. I'll tell you the first verse, you know, spoiler alert, the first verse of the letter, Paul and Timothy. So he's one of the authors of the letter with Paul. Now Timothy, um, how many of y'all grew up in a bilingual home? Anybody? We've got a number, look at that. So he's got a mother who's Jewish, and we know from other passages steeped in the Jewish scriptures, now they may have been the Greek version, but there had to have been some Judaism deep within his essence. And a father who's Greek. So you've got someone with a foot in both cultures, with a foot in two different worldviews, in a foot with two different base languages. And this is someone that Paul finds out of the entire world to go with him. And I really like the point that's here, and I don't want to miss it. The point being, Timothy is just the right guy for Paul to take. Timothy's going to be able to relate well to all of the Jews and all of the synagogues that Paul goes to 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 preach the good news of Jesus, Yeshua. Let's, let's use the right language. Paul will go to the Jewish synagogues to preach the good news of Yeshua. And Timothy fits right in. Paul will also go into the Greek world that's not a Jewish synagogue and preach Jesus, which is the Greek Jesus name. Timothy fits right in. We think often of Paul as someone with a foot in two worlds. But we need to realize Timothy was as well. So as we continue in Acts 16, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
look at this closely for a moment. Macedonia. Macedonia. Where is Macedonia? Well, Paul at the time is in Troas. So Paul's over here on the coast of modern Turkey. And he's being told to come over to Macedonia. Well, Macedonia is an area. You know what we're going to do? We're just going to unplug this over there and see if we can make this in a better mood by plugging it in over here. Be happy. <laughs> All right. So Macedonia oh, is this area right up here. This is Macedonia. So Paul has a dream. And in his dream, now Paul and his crew had wanted to go up here. They'd wanted to go like almost the exact opposite. But he has a dream and in the dream the guy says, help, come help us. We need help in Macedonia. Paul wakes up from the dream and says, hey, we're going to Macedonia. Concluding that God had called them, uh, oh yeah, look, us. We sought to go to Macedonia, concluding God had called us. This is one of those transition passages in Acts, which tells you that Luke, the writer of Acts, has now joined the band. So Luke's with them. So he's saying, hey, we conclude this must be God. God wants us to go there. Now I really like this. God had called us to preach. This verb, um, proskekletai, is, is the verb here, and, and it's in the perfect, you can see the duplication, the perfect tense in Greek. Now, the perfect tense typically indicates a completed action, something that's complete, done, whose effects are felt in the present. So the perfect tense, something has been completed in the past, but it's not just being referred to as a past event, it's being referred to in terms of the present consequences, the present effects. And I really think this is a great verb tense to use here because amazing things do happen in the present when we heed the voice of God. When God speaks into our life, and God tells us to do something. And we act upon what he says. The effects are worth writing about. The effects are noticeable. The effects are what God wants. And this to me goes down to the gut level of what faith is. Is faith something that says, well, we need something that makes us happy and something that's general, but we'll just interpret it based upon our wants and needs and desires? Or is there real objective truth to faith that there is a God who really does have a plan and we can choose to trust in it and follow him or not? And that to me is that real faith that's life-changing. And, and, and I love that verb tense that's used there. So it continues. So setting sail from Troas, we, again, Luke's joined the band, made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis. 
and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, I am, I want to tell you about my Greek scholarship. I am so good at Greek that I'm dangerous. And the reason I'm dangerous is because I'm not a Greek scholar. I know just enough to be dangerous and to make big mistakes. So I could be so wrong on this. I've got David Capes, who's taught Greek for 30 years, sitting over here. And, and he's just smiles, which doesn't tell me a thing. Because he'd smile if I was right, and he'd smile if I was wrong. So I could be so wrong on this, David. And I just readily admit it, okay? Anybody watching on video who's a good Greek scholar? Mia culpa. I could be so wrong. But I want to tell you, I'm not that big of a fan of this translation of this. Okay, let me tell you why. Interesting little tidbit here. So Philippi is right up here in the map, right? That's a river on one side, and that's a river on the other side. Say, who cares? Well, let me tell you who cares. I do. Let me tell you why. This is Livy, a Roman historian. This is his history of Rome. I will flip us over to book 45, chapter 29. Let's get this just right. Now, he's talking about events that happened after the stuff that we were talking about earlier. Here were the terms. The Macedonians were given their freedom. They were to keep their own cities and lands. They were to use their own laws. They were to elect annual magistrates. They were supposed to pay to the Roman people half the tax which they paid to their kings. Next, Macedonia was to be divided into four regions. One, the first section would comprise the land between the Strymon and Nessus rivers. The first section. It's divided into four sections, four regions. That's the first section. All right. So, that's the Strymon and Nessus rivers that I've drawn up there. And this is the first division are the first section of Macedonia as the Romans carved it up to rule. And then, after the battle, this becomes the Roman colony. This becomes the leading city of section one. Now, go back to the Greek for a moment. A leading city of the district of Macedonia. The Greek actually protase here can mean leading, but in a sense it's first. Uh, in a very real sense, that's the meaning of the word, first. That's why it's leading. You know, who's in first? The one who's leading, okay? First section, division, part of Macedonia city. 
it was the city in the first part, in the first section of Macedonia. It's the leading city there. It's the first city there. And, and, and the translations lose out on this idea. They just say of the district. But it's of the first district. They take protos to mean, uh, protes to put it with city. When I think it actually belongs with the division. It's of the first division. And why do I make a big deal out of this? Well, I'll tell you why. Because I love the accuracy of the biblical accounts. And when you read the book of Acts, it's especially fascinating to read it. And, and I'm old enough now to have remembered and read through some of the earliest criticisms of Acts. And some early scholars acted like, and you can still read some works today where people say, yeah, that book was written 100, 200 years after the events. No, it wasn't. And Luke, the writer who's in on the journey, is using the right terms under Roman law for this area. And so when Luke writes and he says, whoops, that it's a leading city of Macedonia and a Roman colony, that's huge. By the way, if I'm going to be real persnickety on translations, the word Roman's not in the Greek either. The Greek just says city and then it says colonia, which is colony in Greek. But it's a Roman colony. There's a difference between a colonia and an um, apoikia, I guess is what it would be. Is that right? An apoikia? That's not a biblical term, but it's the term that would have been used at the time. It would have been if, if he needed to use it. It was the term used at a time for just a city. That, that's not in, in the Roman things, that's not the Roman colony. It's just a, a, a city. So, so here you've got the writer, Luke, using all of the proper terminology that was in that day and in that age. And I just like the way it shows the accuracy of Scripture. I love the accuracy of the biblical accounts. All right, so let's keep going. We remained in this city some days. So now they're in Philippi, the city of the first district, which is a Roman colony. So it's under Roman law. It's got Roman government. It's got Roman everything, all right? We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside. Now, normally on the Sabbath, Paul went to the synagogue. He's going to go teach about the Messiah. And so Paul normally goes to the, but he doesn't. Because there's not a synagogue there. See, he goes outside the gate to the riverside where he supposed, he thought, he'd been told people would gather and say their Sabbath prayers. And so he goes out there. Now, why wouldn't there be a synagogue if there's a place where Jews are gathering together to say their Sabbath prayers? Rick could answer this question for me. So could a number of you. Pirkei Avot, the, the Teachings of the Fathers, is a set of writings in an in a oral law interpretation of the law. 
And it was written down around 100, 200 A.D., probably written around 200 A.D. or so. But what happened is, if you'll recall, the temple was destroyed during the rebellion against Rome. And so when you destroyed, when Rome destroyed the Jewish temple, it destroyed practicing Judaism in many ways because you don't have the sacrifices. They can't be offered anywhere else. You don't have the priestly system. All of the, the grain offerings, all of the taxation, all of the banking that was done, everything that was being done at the temple is gone. So Judaism was in crisis mode, identity crisis mode. How do you practice Judaism when you don't have a temple? How do you practice Judaism when you can't sacrifice? How do you practice Judaism when you don't have priests? And the answer in part was unfolded through the rabbis trying to explain that. And so this rabbinical teaching that is encapsulated within the Mishnah and written by 200 contains for a hundred years plus what the rabbis were saying trying to put together practicing Judaism sans temple, without a temple. And so within the framework of that, Rabbi Chalafta of Kephar, Hananiah says, quote, among ten, and nothing personal women, but he means ten men, among ten men who sit and work hard on Torah, the presence comes to rest. So if you've got ten men, the presence comes to rest. Now, if you're reading this in the Mishnah, then it goes on to say, but another rabbi thought it was five, and then another rabbi thought, da, 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 da. But the ten, because of the ten that was taught to get the Shekinah presence of God, and that's the Hebrew word here, Shekinah, Shekinah. The, the Shekinah, the we, we say in love, the Shekinah, the Shekinah presence of God. To get that presence of God, you got to have 10 men at least studying Torah. That's a minion. A minion. It takes 10 men to make a minion or a synagogue. And then uh, uh, the rabbi there actually quotes Psalm 82.1. It says, among the assembly of the people, God stands, or assembly of the gods. Um, Psalm 82.1. And, and that's his reference. That's his idea. And there was a debate among the, the rabbis about it. But God has taken his place in the divine council. It says God shows up if you've got ten men. If you don't, you can't have a synagogue. So there aren't even ten. Look, I had a case one time. How are we doing on time? Y'all don't care. I mean, if it takes me a little longer to get through Philippians, you'll get out today. <clears throat> So I was trying a case one time. I had a case in Texarkana, Texas. And many of you know the preacher up there at one of the main Baptist churches is Jeff Shreve, a friend of, of ours and, and a friend of CFBC because he'd been here forever. And so Jeff's the, the lead preacher up there. And I had this case. And, and this case had a, it was a really big, important case. 
and the other side was a big medical device company and they had to figure out who they were going to hire to go against me in Texarkana so they found this lawyer his name was Bob Reich and I don't think Bob would mind me telling this story Bob told it to me much later after the case was over and uh, Bob uh, uh, went to the client and said you need to hire me against Lanier because I'm his twin I'm his doppelganger I'm just like Lanier Lanier zigs I'll zig Lanier zags I zag Lanier jumps I jump Lanier crawls I crawl I do it just like Lanier I'm his twin hire me so they hire the New York Jewish lawyer Bob Reich to go against me in Texarkana now we're getting ready for trial and and trial jury selection is going to start on a Monday so I told Jeff hey I'm going to be in town and Jeff on occasion asked me to come preach for him so he said you want to preach the day before you you uh, pick the jury I said I'd love to so what do you want to preach on I said I, th I think I said the justice of God <laughs> Jeff's got a big billboard that everybody in Texarkana rides by and evidently put up there Houston lawyer Mark Lanier guest speaker Sunday whatever the day was on the justice of God Bob told me sometime after the whole case was over he said um, my client called me up and said okay Lanier doppelganger Lanier's preaching at the Baptist Church the day before jury selection how are you going to zig and zagging with that and he said I told him that there aren't enough people in Texarkana to have a synagogue there's not a minion there aren't 10 Jewish men but if he can find a baby I could do a circumcision <laughs> perform a bris anyway takes 10 to make a minion all right, they don't have enough there for that. The presence comes to rest if there are 10. But I want to tell you something. Great things happen when women pray. This isn't just about 10 men to get the presence of God. Look, I've got my mom over there. I've got our daughter, Rachel. I've got my sweet wife, Becky. You get on their prayer list, you don't need a man anywhere nearby you're going to find results so there at the river right outside Philippi Paul goes on Sabbath Sunday morning and the women have gathered to pray and Luke continues we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together one who heard us was a woman named Lydia I love that name from the city of Thyatira a seller, seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God this is a Roman colony Thyatira where she was from is down in the middle of the coastal region sort of a little outside the coastal region of, of Turkey but there the mutter, matter plant excuse me matter plant was grown still gets grown today in fact it grows in our region you can grow some of that and it's used for dyes the root 
uh, side note, if you're going to do that, you've got to let the roots grow at least two years before you can use them for dye. So if you go home, I'm going to plant this today so I can dye some clothes next week. It's going to take you two years plus to harvest it. And it actually dies better if they've been in the ground for five years. That's just a side note. But the matter plant was used and, and, and Thyatira was famous for using it as a purple dye. So this is what she trades in. She doesn't live there anymore. She lives in Philippi. This is a businesswoman. This is not uh, uh, some quiet church mouse. This is a woman who's out there making her money, doing her thing, and engages with Paul. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And afterwards, she was baptized with her whole household as well. And she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay with us. And she prevailed upon us. Now, I like this. Her household as well said, come to my house. Now, under Roman law, which would apply to this city, remember, it's a Roman colony. Under Roman law, if a woman had three children and she had been born as a freed woman, she was entitled to everything in Roman law. I mean, she could have... Uh, she could own her business, she could own her home, she could do all of that. So it gives us an indication her household probably had at least her three kids or more. If she'd been a freed woman, not born free, but had been set free, you had to have four kids under Roman law. But this is a Roman colony with Roman law. She's a business person. She's got her business and it's running well. She's got her own house. She's got her own kids and they're all baptized. Now, after that, Paul has a bit of a ruckus. Paul and Silas are walking down the street, and there is a woman who's demon-possessed who makes her owners a lot of money by telling the future. And she's following after him and going, Paul, Paul. And if you know that Paulus in Latin, his name means shorty. She's walking down the street going, short stuff, shorty, 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 or doing something to get on his nerves. And so he knows she's demon-possessed, Paul does. So Paul just turns around and invokes the demon to come out of her. Demon flees. And now her owners realize that their golden ticket has just been punched in a bad way. And they're not going to make any money. So they go complain to the authorities. The authorities go to Paul. The authorities take him to the jailer. They have him beat. They have him whipped. They have him. They, the, they, they, here's the way it says it in Acts 16. It says, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into stocks. Now, you couldn't do that to a Roman citizen anywhere, but certainly not in a Roman colony. But Paul didn't assert his citizenship rights. Paul just let it happen. So Paul and Silas 
or got, by, by the way, beat, they had, the lictors had these rods that they carried with them. They just took the rods and whacked the way out of them. And then locked them in prison. Now about midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns. Singing hymns. That Greek word, humneo, the verb, references singing a song of praise. You've just been arrested. You've had the... You've been beaten silly. You've been locked into a dank, bug, pest, infested inner room, prison. And it's not dark and it's night and there aren't any lights and your feet are in these incredibly uncomfortable stocks and you're sitting there singing songs of praise to the God to God you know praise God to whom all from whom all blessings flow <laughs> you know and that's what's happening and then look what happens the other prisoners are listening and suddenly there's a great earthquake and the foundations of the prison are shaken and immediately the doors are opened and everyone's bonds unfastened. Amazing things happen when you praise the Lord. The jailer woke up and he saw the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, which is what a good Roman soldier, and the odds are he was a retired Roman soldier, what a good Roman soldier would do. I mean, in, in the Battle of Philippi, that's what the leaders did. They killed themselves before they were taken, uh, you know, Brutus, Cassius. So he withdraws his sword. He's about to kill himself, figuring the prisoners had escaped. And under Roman law, if the prisoners escaped, he's going to get killed anyway. He just didn't want to get tortured first. But Paul cries out with a loud voice, Stop! Don't hurt yourself. We're all here. Now that's a stunner. But the stage is set here for God to go to work. So let's look for a moment at, with that background at this koinonia idea. Paul's letter to the Philippians begins. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in... Oh, I left out a very important part of the story. The stage is set for God to go to work because Paul comes out. He explains to his jailer who God is and what God has done. And the jailer and all of his household are converted and baptized and become, along with Lydia and others, the Philippian church. We're just a few years from there when Paul writes. And Paul ultimately is writing from a prison. He's been arrested again. I'm sure the Philippian jailer, hearing the letter of Paul was to some degree chuckling over the irony that the jailbird who got, him, who got him and his household converted is back in jail again 
And while he may not be singing hymns of joy, he's coming pretty close because he's writing a letter of joy out of the prison. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace is a standard Paul opening. But it's one that would have had great meaning to these people because of their experience with Paul and the exception of their church just years before. And don't you know that the jailer himself, whose own life was spared because Paul called him out, that that jailer himself knew a peace. There are so many studies that say psychologically a bond is established between someone whose life is saved by someone else. And it's true in medicine. It's true on the battlefield. It's true in life in general. It's true with organ transplants. It's even true in Harry Potterville. As Dumbledore says at the end of The Prisoner of Azkaban, when one wizard saves another wizard's life, it creates a certain bond between them. So Paul continues, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul's bringing back to their mind memories. Whether it was by the creek or the river, whether it was staying in the home, whether it was in the jail, whether it was crying out, don't kill yourself, we're here. Always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Oh, song singer of joy and prayer of joy. Because of your koinonia, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Koinonia, a partnership, is a, uh, I equate it to the aspen forests in the mountains, in the Rockies, because all of those aspen trees in a grove have a connection in the roots. If you poison one aspen tree, it can poison the whole grove because it'll go down into the roots and it spreads. If one aspen tree is really happy, the rest of the grove's really happy. They all go into hibernation or lose their leaves. It's not hibernation, that's bears. They all go into the autumnal sleep of a tree, whatever that is, at the same time because they're all connected. And that's this koinonia, commonness, connectedness. And Paul talks about how there is that commonness between them. And then where we'll close this today, because God is at work. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Look, I read this as the Philippian jailer, and I'm thinking, amen, Lord, you have begun a good work in me. Bring it to completion when Christ returns. I really like this book. I think when we unpack this book, you're going to get a lot of joy. You're going to get a lot of joy when we realize these are real people in a real place in a real time. But here are your three points to ponder as we leave today. And I'm sorry I won't be staying around. I got to hit the road pretty quick. Number one, just consider the craziness of history. 
I mean, your parents hadn't met. Where are you going to be? Their parents hadn't met. Where are they going to be? You hadn't been in the right place in the right time. You hadn't, you hadn't, you hadn't, you hadn't. History's crazy. Psalm 139 says of God, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. There's a craziness in history. But it's a craziness that always works to the glory of God and his kingdom. Because we have the God of history. So don't get lost in the craziness of history. Give praise to God of the craziness of history. Second, the presence of God. The debate was, does it take ten men... For God to be present, Jesus weighed in on this. Jesus said it this way, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm among them. He didn't say men. He didn't. He said two or three. It, look, there is a special presence of God in our midst, a Shekinah presence of God when we gather together to study his name. We welcome your presence. And then last point. Let's trust God for the journey. Because if he's God of history, he's also the God of the future. So what we've got to do is walk in faith to fulfill that path he's laid out before us. Do we stumble and mess up? Yes, we do. But we still try by his grace to do the best we can. Let me bless you in Jesus' name, and then it's time for church. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray your blessings on all who might hear this message. That you will receive glory and honor and power for who you are and what you have done for us in this world. And that we will walk in faith, trusting you for tomorrow, just as much as you've earned our praise for yesterday. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.